And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to The Real Investment Show. It's the hot day edition, right? It's the third best, second best day of the week, right? Third, Actually, third best. Tomorrow will be second best. Friday's the best day of the week, of course, as always. We're going to get there. Who's counting? Who's, ca- who's counting for the weekend already? When's our next holiday coming up? That's what we need to be Monday. doing. Monday. <laughs> Monday. I know, right? Already got a holiday coming up right around the corner. Seems like we just got through with holidays. We needed a holiday to get over our holidays. <laughs> this is actually a point. That's true. So anyway, uh, a couple of things this morning. Now, we're going to get into this more tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz uh, when he gets here as well because he's our resident Fed expert. But yesterday, Jerome Powell up on uh, Capitol basically giving testimony now. now. Now, remember that Jerome Powell recently reappointed to his post as Fed chairman by Joe Biden. So he's now you know, serving another term as Fed chairman. Yesterday, giving testimony, said some very interesting things. Um, and and there, there are some things that we need to be thinking about now as we move further into this year. First of all, he said that economic growth is very strong and the economic recovery is doing very well. Now, in order to prolong that economic recovery, we've got current levels of high inflation that was caused by the supply chain shutdown. And these inflationary pressures are now starting to potentially weigh on that economic recovery that we're having. So with regards to that, he now needs to, he feels, and he and the rest of the Fed members feel, they need to more aggressively raise interest rates and tighten their balance sheet. Okay. Now, if we were in a normal organic recovery that was occurring, I would absolutely agree with his his sentiment. And that if inflation was a function of really strong economic growth that was organic in nature, I would agree with the statement that we need to be much more aggressive about hiking monetary policy. But what he seems to forget, and and really, when this comes down to a lot of mainstream economists, right? If you listen to the television media, read a lot of articles, they're talking about how great the economic recovery is, yet we all forget, or at least seem to forget, that this economic recovery was a function of $5 trillion worth of fiscal liquidity Uh, and mind you, debt-funded fiscal liquidity provided by the government into the economy, right? We we sent $1,400 checks to households, $900 checks to households, $1,400 checks to households, extended unemployment benefits, child care tax credits, you name it. We were flooding households with liquidity. So what did they do with that money? Of course, they went out and they spent it. Well, the economy was shut down. So of course, you had supply chain disruptions because you couldn't produce enough inventory to meet the pull forward demand of all this liquidity pumped into the economy. So we've pulled forward a lot of that liquidity. All that liquidity was used to pull forward demand. So in other words, people were out buying stuff that they wouldn't have bought in 2020 or 2021 because they didn't have the capital. All of a sudden they have it and they go, woohoo, can't travel. Let's go buy a new washing machine, dryer, whatever it was, go buy a new car. So we pull forward all that demand. Now, the problem, (coughs) excuse me, the problem for the Fed 
is that they're thinking that the economic recovery and the supply chain disruptions are a function of a strong organic economic recovery, yet it was really the function of all this liquidity, which now is retrenching out of the system because we haven't passed any more bills. Uh, the Build Back Better bill, which was going to extend the child tax credit. That seems to be, at least at this moment, dead in the water. Doesn't seem to be any more fiscal liquidity bills coming down the, the pike, even though uh, Nancy Pelosi recently saying now is the time to do another one. We need to do another one. Americans need more money in their pockets. Well, of course they do. You're about to go up for re-election, so you certainly want to give everybody a chicken in the pot, right? So this is the problem, is that we don't have any more of this fiscal liquidity coming into the market. So what consumers had, they'd spent, and now this inflation created by that pull-forward demand is eating into, it's eroding their ability to maintain their cost of living because the inflation's running higher than wage growth. Businesses are now struggling with higher wages. That's going to begin impacting their profit margins. Now, when wages rise to the point that it impedes the profit margins for businesses, what do they do? They can either pass on that inflation to a point to consumers, their customers, or they begin trying to minimize costs within their business structure to maintain profit margins. What does that mean? Well, that means we stop hiring people and we start laying them off. This becomes a deflationary spiral in wages ultimately as that occurs and that starts to push the economy towards a recession. Here's the problem for the Fed. The whole premise of their belief is that this is an organic recovery. It wasn't a a temporary illusion of recovery created by $5 trillion worth of stimulus that is now gone. So now the Fed's going to be hiking rates and pushing tighter monetary policy onto an economy at the time that liquidity is leaving the system. So you're going to start having a retrenchment of this economic growth, a reduction in inflation as we get further into this year as demand begins to wane on the system. We've already seen inventories come up. We're already starting to see a lot of the supply chain disruptions starting to fade here. And this is because demand is already starting to slow. Uh, disposable personal income, savings rates, those are all returning now back to previous trend growth that we saw prior to all this pandemic-driven liquidity. So the Fed has now potentially put themselves into a very, very tight position. The risk going into this year is that they make a monetary policy mistake. And again, we'll talk more about this with Michael Leibowitz tomorrow, the ramifications of this. But, you know, these are the things you really want to start focusing on now. It's not something that's going to happen immediately, but this is going to start changing the dynamic of the market as we get further into this year. And as we talked about earlier, um, you know, one of the things that we expect this year more than anything else is probably a much more volatility. So again, you know, you're going to start to see more drawdowns of two, three, four, five, ten percent. You'll see more uh, a more common occurrence of those potentially this year. Don't know for sure, but that would be reasonable to expect in an environment where you're beginning to hike rates. Again, you're going to see a lot of initial commentary say initial rate hikes by the Fed don't matter. They don't. It's to the point that they hike rates that all of a sudden something breaks within the markets. Now think about everything that is debt driven in the economy right now. People have been out buying houses like crazy over the last couple of years. Why? Because we gave them a down payment. <laughs> Interest rates were low. We gave them money to go buy a house. They went and bought a house. The problem is now is they've got to maintain it. 
Now, as interest rates start to go up, what happens to the refinance market? Well, people stop refinancing their mortgage. I'm not going to refinance my mortgage at a higher rate. That makes no sense. And I'm not going to buy a house at a higher rate because if I'm a consumer looking to buy a house, A, as rates go up, prices of homes come down. So all these people that bought overpriced houses, they're now going to be underwater, unable to sell their house. And people looking to buy a house are going to do two things. One, they're going to say, well, you know, prices are coming down. I think I'll wait to see if prices come down a little bit more. That's deflation. And that's the psychological um, response to deflation is to wait to see if prices go lower. The second thing they're going to do is, say, well, I'm not going to buy a house with, with rates here. I'm going to wait to see if rates come back down again. Why? Because rates always come back down again. This is going to start to feed that whole psychology feeds through the economy. And this is where you wind up with that inverted yield curve. Ultimately, that would probably be something later this year, uh, late 2022, start to see that inversion of the yield curve. That'll start setting up the premise for a recession. And it's all assuming the Fed maintains their current tech. My suspicion is that as soon as this all starts to occur, the Fed backs off. But we'll see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks. We'll talk more about this with Michael Leibowitz tomorrow. But Danny Ratliff joining me here after the break to talk about does asset allocations at one size fits all. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. caffeine already. Already had two sips. I'm ready to roll. That's what I get for drinking Death Wish this early in the morning. <laughs> oh, man. Brent got you on that too, huh? Oh, yeah. I think, I think Brent switched on me, though. I think he went over to Black Rifle. But see, I, I, I'm, I'm giving up on Black Rifle Coffee Company. I enjoyed them when they were a private company, but they sold out to private equity now. So now they've gone to the dark side. So... I think I'm going to have to move, have to find me a new, small, and up-and-coming brand of coffee to start promoting. I mean, once you once you give up to the dark side and sell out for the capital, I mean, it's just downhill from there. You become Starbucks. So, well, hey, if you have good coffee, I mean, what's what's the purpose of somebody creating a business at some point, right? You want to? Uh, no, I reap your no, I, no, ca- no. I am completely, you know, happy for them that they've made just quality is going to go down the tube, right? Just a ton of money, right? But now it'll become you know Starbucks quality coffee, which isn't great. So. You know, now we need to go find a new little off-brand somewhere to start uh, helping them, helping up them and come, up. and yeah, so they can be the next, so they can be the next people to sell out in the market, right? Perfect. <laughs> so, if you got a good, if you if you've got an up-and-coming brand of coffee, let us know, and uh, send us a sample. We'll try it out. If we like it, we'll start promoting it. We'll so, promote you to all three people, and exactly, we'll share it internally. <laughs> Um, anyway, a couple of things here, as uh, I said. So, you know, as I was talking about secondary, look, there's the Fed was very adamant yesterday that they are adhering to this idea of hiking rates 
and winding up the balance sheet. We're now talking about four rate hikes this year. Now, remember, early last year it was two, then it was three, now it's four. So this uh, rate hiking campaign is becoming much more aggressive, and the balance sheet reduction is becoming much more aggressive. So the point about that is, is, is that's going to create a change to the market environment. Um, as the commercial said a second ago, and as Danny's got coming up uh, very shortly on Candy Coffee, you know, 2022 is not going to be 2021. They're going to be very different years and a much more challenging year, I suspect. But this is also, you know, a function of a change in liquidity, pandemic driven benefits, and, you know, a lot of the things that occurred during the pandemic. And, and as I was saying earlier, you know, all that liquidity went into an economy that created spending and it pulled forward demand. So in other words, I gave you a check for 1400 bucks. You didn't save it. You went out and you spent it. What did you buy? Well, you couldn't travel. You couldn't really go out and eat, so you started doing home repairs. I mean, we saw Home Depot and Lowe's. It's so funny, right? During the pandemic, we're all supposed to be locked down. You go to Home Depot, they're crammed with people buying stuff, right? <laughs> you know, they were the super spreader centers <laughs> of COVID during the pandemic. But this is because we gave people all this money, and so they were pulling forward demand. Now, what are they going to spend? And, and in fact, Danny, there was a, a recent study on pandemic spending as well. There was. So it's interesting. So John Hancock does a study every year on annual stress finances and well-being report. Right. And so just what you would you would think, you know, there's been a little bit of additional stress caused by the pandemic, but surprisingly, there's actually been some areas where people feel a little bit better. There hasn't been as much decision fatigue is what they call it because people didn't have to make as many decisions based on spending. Right. Hey, where are we going to go out to eat? Where are we going to go? Oh, wait, everything's can't shut go. down. <laughs> we, can't, we can't go anywhere. So Believe it or not, that actually was a benefit for many households. Now, coming out of that, we'll see how people respond as far as what, what spending yeah, habits look like. Yeah, I think the, like. the big decision, you know, in the households was really, you know, which alcohol to drink. I mean, that was more of the, I think that was the big, you know. And then you then you wind up not being able to get your favorite alcohol because of the supply chain disruption. So, yeah, so it really became a challenge to get alcohol. Yeah, you know, al alcohol investors should feel pretty good because typically, you know, they call them recession-proof. Now we can say they're also pandemic-proof. They are. So And people are converting vodka into hand sanitizer. So there you go. Wow, I didn't hear about that one. <laughs> really? That's impressive. <laughs> Hey, all kinds of uses, guys. <laughs> Next time you go to the liquor stores, hey, baby, sanitize it. <laughs> exactly. All good. So, you know, lots of different things that are going on, obviously. But the study did find a handful of things that were, were not too shocking. It said 58% of respondents responded with financial stress. 87% of those said that their finances were a cause of that. Imagine that. Yeah. And, and so some of the bigger things were is that some of the things that I think that we're seeing now is that many people have said that they will not work for a company. And we're seeing this big shift mm -hmm. that many people are wanting more benefits, right. more retirement benefits, more help, more guidance, financial advice surrounding that. And so I think that this has actually been good in that aspect that made people are a little bit more aware of some of the things that are out there and then what they should, shouldn't be doing. So this has been a, you know, a big push for us as well. You know, as we've, we always try to help clients navigate the retirement space. We've actually, you know, just a little bit over a year ago, hired a retirement plan consultant, Tom Allen. You guys have probably visited with him or heard him on the show a couple of times. And this is something that is really important because now employers are really having to think about how do you retain top talent, especially when we look at, you know, labor force participation rates, employment numbers, 
people, you know, and then every day you hear new studies that people are leaving jobs to start their own business or do something different. So, yeah, and, and that's an interesting set. And, and remind me about that in a few minutes because yeah. there, you know, every year the uh, Census Bureau comes out with a number of people that are creating new businesses, and that doesn't really jive. Yeah, see, I don't quite get that either because we see all these small businesses shutting down, yet all these other people are leaving to go create their own small mm-hmm. business. I don't know if that environment's real ripe for this, right? Right. Well, and again, the, the data doesn't support it. I just did a study on this uh, just a couple of weeks ago talking about why small caps could be in trouble this year. And, you know, when we talk about, and I know that we're deviating from your topic real quick, but, you know, when you look at the number of businesses that actually have employees, that hasn't changed in like 20 years. Yeah. It's pretty flat. Um, the number of, but the number of small businesses have grown. The problem is, is the ones that are growing are the ones that have no employees. Now, why would I create a business with no employees? Well, those are LLCs, those are LPs, those are being used for family trust, estate planning, um, a lot of things like that for tax shelters, not for actually running a business. So, for instance, I have, I have a family trust. It has no employees, um, but it's there to, to handle the family investments. So, you know, there's a lot of those, and those grow every year. The, the number of businesses that between, by the time you strip out the number of businesses that go out of business, 80% of businesses fail. So if you think that you're creating you know, 50 new businesses a year, well, 80% of those are failing. So over time, they really don't change much. And yeah. the number of active businesses out there really haven't grown. So this also really goes into the employment numbers. When we get the employment numbers from the BLS, they have an adjustment every month. It's called the birth death adjustment, which assumes that people ran out, as Danny just said, according to the surveys, everybody's quitting their job to go start a business. And so every month we add, you know, 100, 200,000 people to the rolls on this idea that they went out and started a business and they're no longer counted in the actual employment, right? But they're there. They just created a small business. But the data of the number of businesses in the country doesn't support that either. In fact, the number of businesses have actually declined slightly over the last decade. So, yep. which, which there's, which it makes up that, which makes a lot of sense. We take a look at labor force participation rates haven't really grown, actually yep. have fallen over the last decade. You know, it makes a lot of sense because there's, there's a 10 million person gap. If you strip out that BLS birth death adjustment, there's 10 million people missing from the employment report. So where are they? They're out there. Well, they retired early. They've done something different. They've taken a part-time job. Yeah. Um, they're yeah. no longer counted as part of the labor force. But, you know, going back to your form. point, uh, as far as new businesses being started, especially this last year with the tax code looking to, to change, I yeah. mean, there's a very aggressive push this last year for a change. So many people were, you know, they were jockeying assets, trying to figure out where do they put things in the sense yeah. of trying to protect them. Yeah. And so I would assume if we look back at 2021, we'll probably see even more created just because of that, looking at you know, uh, you know, limited partnerships, mm-hmm. LLCs, things of that nature that do look like a business on the outside looking in, yep. but at the end of the day, they're just, they're just there to shelter assets, right? And and again, this and and you know, this is also kind of one of the interesting things when you're talking about pandemic spending and and you know, uh, you know, people's financial situations. We you know we see a very high quit rate right now. Mm-hmm. See people jumping around from job to job because they can get a higher wage. And maybe, and to your point, right, they want more benefits. I think we're going to see a change to that. You know, one of the things that, you know, we're discovering is, is even as our business is that this work from home thing really doesn't work all that well. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to be productive 
and, and maintain productivity, uh, especially with the younger generation mm-hmm. <laughs> working at home. They need that supervision. They need to be in, in the office. And I think we're going to start to see a lot of companies go, that was a great idea for a while, but we have all this office space here. Yeah. Um, so it's either going to be a, a two-pronged approach. Either major companies are going to start to liquidate their office space if they are going to move to this work-from-home environment. But I have a sneaky suspicion that we're going to see companies go, that wasn't such a great idea. We need people back in the office. We've already seen this with Goldman Sachs and a couple of other big financial firms saying, no, y'all need to come back to the office where you're more productive and you're more focused on your business and what you're doing. Just, just you know, too many distractions at home, too easy to go do other things and then come back to, you know, do work. So, and then, and again, you lose that work-life balance. All of a sudden your yep. work is your life at home. So I think, you know, th- while the younger millennials go, oh, I like this work from home thing because I can have work-life balance, they're starting to realize already that work just starts to consume. Blend into everything. It just blends into yeah. everything, right? So, I, I, you know, I think we could see a push for that to come back to the office. And the other side of this is, is also is that that's going to start, if you start demanding, right, well, I want to work from home. Okay, you can work from home, but we're going to pay you less. Mm-hmm. If you want to work in the office, we'll pay you more and give you more benefits. But if you're going to work at home, you know, your, your rate is going to be lower. And I think, uh, and, and I think we could see that shift. And again, I'm just speculating here, Yeah. but in order to entice people to come back to the office, you incentivize people to come work at the office rather than work at home. Yeah. And I think that's so we'll a, something that'll be interesting to see how that plays out because you think about long-term leases, people that have yeah. been there for a while, companies that are still successful yet finding, Hey, we can be more efficient. Maybe if everybody's in one space, yeah. you know, I've had this conversation where yeah. we've done so many zoom meetings, but it's really nice to get everybody in a room and have a discussion. Yeah. There's something, there's something about collaborating and working and, and when you're all working together and collaborating and, you know, Hey, just stopping by the water cooler and say, Hey, Danny, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. You know, you can be much more productive that way than being so detached. And, yeah. and people are, look, there's uh, people getting zoomed out, right? I mean, they're getting tired of all these zoom meetings constantly. So you know, we'll we'll see. I think I think twenty. I think this year is going to be very interesting to how that work dynamic begins to change and how it begins to affect wages, uh, commercial property. I think we'll see some big changes this year. Yeah. So anyway, be right back after the break. Asset allocation um, is it for everybody? Is it one size fits all? Uh, Dalbar had a recent comment about that. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Radliff joining me this morning. It's The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Check out our latest blog posts that are there. Our daily market commentary is up for today. Make sure you subscribe for that. It comes out every morning at 7.30 sharp. Get you ready for the markets, what's going on for the day. Um, also, uh, simplevisor.com is our new uh, subscriber service. That's up and running as well. 
So it is all there for you every day. Subscribe to the newsletter. So much stuff. Keep you up to date on the markets and your money and what's going on. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. So just wrapping up our conversation from the last, last segment on this pandemic spending study, um, you know, what were the, what were kind of the conclusions on that? Well, so we we're talking about the the stress finances well-being report from John Hancock, which they've been doing for the last eight years. So have some pretty good information. And some of the things I think that were really, you know, key and, and something that I honed in on was, and we kind of talked a bit about this just this last segment was cost of financial stress due to absenteeism and productivity loss yeah. rose considerably. Well, who would imagine that? Yeah, imagine. You know, rose rose by twenty six percent. But you know, some of the things that I think that are not shocking, but um, you know, everybody says how the consumer is that much better off. And we keep hearing all these great reports that, oh, everybody's doing better because of all the stimulus checks. Well, guess what? Most people went out and spent that money. So what they actually found was that 43% of respondents were behind schedule in retirement savings. 38% said they were on track. But 49% said that they were still slated to retire when originally planned, which we know mm-hmm. more often than not, that, that that's not the case. <laughs> not the everybody case. thinks they're there and they're, oh, we're still going to do it. We'll figure it out. And then 24% did say they were going to retire later, which is a change from what they had previously said. So I think that some of the big things that, that we're seeing is that people want more access to information. They need better guidance. And there has been, you know, we, we talked about the decision fatigue mm-hmm. that people are experiencing. And it's so difficult with so much information out there. And so I think this is where a really good financial advisor could come into play. They're also saying that people, you know, we think we're in this area where everybody's going to do it yourself they're actually seeing an increase of people going and seeking good financial advice. So, which is why we're doing the Candid Coffees, Lance, why we're doing all these different Mm -hmm. things, real investment advice, like you mentioned. There's so much different financial information on there to help guide you, give you real information that's not designed to, say, sell a product. It's really just to give you the information as a fiduciary to help you understand what's going on, how to protect assets, how to grow them. And I think that's what's really important. And so, you know, keeping these things in mind, you know, that can of coffee will be this Saturday. Go sign up, realinvestmentadvice.com. Go to the events tab. In fact, I think right when you pull up the page, you'll be able to log in right there. There'll be a, a pop-up that'll be there. So go check it out. It's an hour, 8 to 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. We'd love to have you guys there. Really informal setting. Rich and I just answer lots of different questions. Uh, do you have a couple things kind of pre-scripted, so to speak, that'll be ready for you? So, you know, I had to get on Rich a little bit. I'm like, well, this isn't as exactly as candid as usual, but uh, we're certainly going to be get, be answering your questions live. And if you have any now, please go to realinvestmentadvice.com, ask them. We'll be happy to answer uh, during the show, or if not, we'll get to you afterwards. But, you know, talking about all the things that are going on, Lance, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of where we have been, you know, from a market perspective, how people have responded economically, you know, how they feel from their well, their households or well-being. And, you know, lots of reports out on Asset allocation. So Dalbar did a new study, and they are suggesting that we now use a prudent asset allocation. So you're going to love this one. And, and, and Dalbar, I think, does a lot of really nice, they nice do, things. They do some great research. They, they do a lot of really good stuff. But one of the things that stood out to me was that this prudent asset allocation is essentially saying that you need to have – it's based on investors' cash needs for the next mm-hmm. five years. Okay. Okay, but they're going to look at if you're working, your income is going to be considered cash, what you're bringing in each year. So that'll be included in your cash bucket. Any cash you have, treasury bills, CDs, uh, things of that nature. Sure. And the remainder, no caution to the wind. All stocks. Risk assets. Risk assets. And the reason they're saying this is that since 1940, the longest recovery period for any major downturn has been five years. Mm -hmm. 
But I could go back and anybody could pull up a simple chart of the S&P 500. No, that's not necessarily true. Right. Now, maybe we haven't had a five consecutive years of down of a downturn, but just getting back to even. can take 12, 13, 14 years. A good example, just the most recent one, to, uh, took from uh, March of 2000 until June of 2013 on a total return inflation-adjusted basis. Yep. To get back to even. So, you know, five years of cash isn't really going to help you that much. But I, I do see the point of this. Um, and, you know, that's something that, you know, I do personally is I've got five years worth of cash set aside and in, in very liquid assets and a lot of cash um, just in case, you know, one of my businesses or this business needs cash or if something happens, there's, you know, plenty of liquidity. I have to go into you know, other assets um, and start forcing liquidations, which always occurs at the worst possible time, Correct. right? So what what cash gives you is uh, a bit of flexibility in terms of how to manage your risk in your risk asset pool. And, you know, one thing that you and I talk about a lot, and I think people really overlook this to a great degree, is particularly when you're moving in, moving into retirement or close to retirement or, or already in retirement, mm-hmm. is your withdrawal rate during a decline. So, you know, if the markets are down 10, and let's just for, you know, grand sake, say you're, say you're taking a 5% out of your portfolio every year to live on. So not, you're not down just 15 in the year. So the market's down 10, you take out five, you're not down 15. You're actually down like 18%. The reason is, is because you're selling assets on the decline to take out that money, which is exacerbating the drawdown. And the compounding effect, you know, we always hear about compounding, the, the power of compounding, most powerful force in the universe when it comes to finance. It's true. Works on the upside, great. Works on the downside, even worse. Because you can compound losses just like you can compound gains. So, you know, having cash then allows you to have a bucket that you can draw out of during market turmoil um, or market decline. So you're not having to, for, again, force sell good assets at distressed prices because you're going through a market correction. Correct. And, and I think that the survey hits, or the, the study, hits a nail on the head in the aspect that, look, you need cash. Right. You know, we've been we've been talking about emergency reserves. We've been talking about financial vulnerability cushion, do it going above and beyond. But I think that we need to be a little bit more, um, you know, we need to go into detail a little bit more here, mm-hmm. right? Because now they're saying, well, your income is going to count as cash. What well, happens if your income so- goes away? Correct. Right. That's exactly right. So now maybe in retirement, it's a little bit different because we have Social Security, you have a pension. We're hopefully going to be able to always rely on those things. And then we're going to have our bucket that we're going to have in cash. But this is why I think a good financial plan. So instead of saying, hey, go do a financial plan, they just said, keep five years of cash ready to go and you'll and, be okay. And this is the beautiful thing about whole life insurance, right? That you overfund, mm-hmm. you build up a cash cushion that you can withdraw tax free at any time. And you get paid four, you know, three, four, five percent a year, depending on the the policy, as an interest income. Yep. You know, on the policy, so it's a dividend, and and you know, so that continues to accumulate. And even if you borrow the money out of the policy to to get through a rough patch, it's still compounding the total value on the annual income. So you know, it ha- it's a really great way to build this cash cushion that's Correct. actually growing for you and providing that safety net that you need. And, you know, this is, you know, one of things like, oh, buy term, you know, forget whole life and, you know, it's too expensive. There's a lot of benefits that you give up not owning whole life insurance that you overfund on a regular basis. Yeah, and that, that's a whole other topic. We whole other conversation. We could spend days on that. That's but, a candy coffee you and I should do. Yeah, we should. And yeah. that's one of those things I think that, you know, goes 
it's, it's overlooked often. We hear about Dave Ramsey says, oh, never utilize something like that. But getting back to another avenue to have cash built up and have distributions that are going to be that aren't going to be taxable later in life. Yep. Man, I mean, what a great tool. But, you know, this study, I think, is really what they're doing is they call the other asset allocation arbitrary asset allocation mm-hmm. where nobody cares that you just say, hey, here's, you know, here's a million dollars, put it to work and we're just going to invest it. Right. And, you know, I think we're moving past that as an industry. Hopefully. I, I would think, right, where yeah. it's a little bit more deliberate as far as how we're investing. We need to have that holistic approach where we're finding out where, what are your expenses? What other types of assets do you own? How do you own them? What's the registration? And people are getting smarter or, or more educated around this in the sense that they're, they are starting to say, okay, maybe I should diversify where I am putting things. Maybe I shouldn't just put something in, you know, everybody's buying things in their IRAs, their yeah. retirement accounts. And you can lose a lot of the benefits of owning some of these assets by doing so. Yeah. Stop putting real estate in your IRA. <laughs> it's yeah. the worst thing you can do. But, you know, the, the you know, but this also brings up the point is that, you know, one of the things I think the industry does really bad is they just make blanket recommendations. You know, you need to be in this allocation mix and you know, yep. you need to be diversified and own all these assets. And look, over the last decade, owning emerging markets international has been terrible. It's been a boat anchor on your on your performance. Um you know, I think I think asset allocation needs to be very individualized. Everybody's different. And, and you, you know, give up this idea of chasing benchmarks. Your benchmark is what you need to get to retirement on time, intact. Um, just because you can drive 100 miles an hour in a car to get to your destination doesn't mean you should. And, you know, depending on the, your car, your skill, those type of things, there's consequences for stretching that risk profile mm-hmm. in your portfolio, trying to get to your destination early. And more often than not, you know, you wind up in a tragic accident that wipes out and pushes you out years to get into retirement. We just see this repeatedly over and over again. Well, and look, the odds are you're going to make your destination safely, but the one time you don't is going to derail you for a considerable amount of time. That's exactly that's right. You know, that's what's catastrophic that I think that is tough to put down on paper or just to think about, oh, look, things have been great. We have the recency bias. Oh, it was a great year last year. We're going to have another year like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many well, comments do you hear the, like that? Look, that's what the media says. Uh, chart out this morning. Uh, after, in the year, this is this is a great chart, right? It says, after years where you have a 25% return in the markets, the average return the next year is 14%. Okay, first of all, that average is heavily skewed by the early 1930s coming out of the Depression, where the Dow was coming off a level of 80 so 80 to 160 is an easy move. You know, Dow 30,000 to 32,000, different move, right? Um, you know, big skews to that, but also kind of misses out the fact of 2000, 2008, those years coming after big returns that led to major downturns in markets. So, you know, you got to be really careful with this. Yes, statistics say you should get an average, but average means you've been higher and lower to get to that average. And the question is, you don't want to be on the lower side of that at exactly the wrong time. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't let 2022 be a repeat of the past year. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for their essential smart money tips for the new year candid coffee event on Saturday, January 15th. You'll learn the landmines to avoid, tax advantages we see, and money tips you need to know in the new year. 
Register now for our next Candid Coffee at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show today. Getting ready to wrap it up here with Danny Ratliff, of course. Uh, hey, if I hear music, pod me up. Quit, quit, quit messing around over there. It's one of those mornings. Got gotcha. you. Just can't get employees anymore. You've got your black <laughs> rifle. <laughs> You're, you don't have your. I you didn't what? get my black <laughs> rifle this morning. What, you, know? you wind up with a gummy bear. <laughs> Feel like it. So anyway, get ready to wrap up the show this morning. So, um, kind of you know wrapping up this conversation about asset allocation. Um, that also kind of brings up this you know whole problem with you know target date funds and four hundred one k plans. And we've talked about the problem with those in the past. And now Vanguard's going to try to double down on that with you know new target date funds for millennials, right? Correct. And, and this isn't necessarily news. They're always coming out each year or two every because they're on a glide path, right? Typically on a five year schedule. Okay, 2020, 2025. You know, now we're looking at like 2060, 2065, 2070 as you know, people are, are aging up, which so not really big news, but they are looking to become more aggressive, which I didn't think that was possible. Yeah. Considering like a retiree would be a 50 50 model. Um, you know, and this is the problem. You know, we look at the new ones, the initial mixture of a 90-10, 90% stocks, 10% bonds, 54% U.S. stocks, 36% foreign stocks, 7% U.S. fixed income, and 3% foreign fixed income. Mm. So really not, you know, they're just kind of blanket diversifying. The problem with this is, like you mentioned earlier, emerging markets, international, those have greatly underperformed. Mm. So these have been a drag on, on the overall portfolio, and they don't go and change it as quickly as what you would think. They're on a glide path. But they're just going to say, "Hey, hold it. You're going to be okay. You have a long time until you retire." Yeah, and but you know, and also too, it's it's you know, there's there's another problem with these target date funds is that they don't actually have a target date. And what I mean by that is, is that if I have a target, okay, let me ask you this question: Why can I buy a 2010 target date fund today? Well, because right. it's it's still there, right? I mean, Correct. I can still go buy that 2000. Why would I buy it? If it was supposed to be target date, it should theoretically mature in 2010 and go away, right? So if that's your target date, you're ready to retire. When you get to 2010, you're 100% bonds, by the way. Whoa, no, no, no. Oh, you're not? No. No. You would think you were 100% ah, bonds. So it's not actually, you know. Yeah. In, okay, I so, got so you. So this is the problem with target date funds that people get really comfortable and think, oh, well, we're on this glide path. Um, it's going to get more conservative over the years. And we've done, Rich and I have talked about this on Financial Fitness yeah. Fridays, where we've compared multiple target date funds, and they're not all created equal. And this is one of the bigger issues with them, is that that glide path may change at a much different period of time than what you expect. So you'd expect if you're going to retirement or even go to their target date retirement income fund, right? what would you think that is? You'd think they'd be super conservative. Yeah. You'd have Most very little them. equity exposure. Yeah, but what cash. happens... It's all good until it's not. And what I mean by that is that when the market falls, man, you get a usually surprised. That's a pretty big surprise when you say, holy smokes, I have 50% in equities. Yep. That's a big, that's a big shock. And that's a me. retirement income, right? Yep. I mean, and, and this and this is the problem with these target date funds. A, they're not really what they purport to be. And again, if I was building a target date fund for a client, just just hypothetically, if you said, Lance, build me a target date fund, I want to retire in 20. 
25 or whatever, then we would build it so that you had so much equity exposure now and some fixed income. But every year as you got closer, that allocation would be shifting more and more so that when you got into retirement, it'd be 100% fixed income and you're, you'd have capital preservation ability there. And that's the other problem with these is they're using bond funds, which have no maturity date. Correct. Um, now, there's what's called a bullet fund. Those, those do exist, and bullet funds actually mature on their date. So at, at a certain date and time, a bullet fund matures and you get all your cash back, right? Um, kind of like a UIT. Or- kind of like UIT. So, you know, you need to be – the point about this conversation is target date funds are not what they purport to be. They are not safe, and they generally underperform. So – and you can do a better job managing your own allocation than you'll do buying a static – you know, kind of buy and hold type structure. It's a nice idea, and, and they're sold well because in, they're in 401 they're, They mostly exist in 401k plans. That's where they, they've really kind of embedded themselves. And the, they seem like it's a good alternative. It's like, oh, I just stick all my money in this target date fund, and it'll adjust for me. And that's not really the case. And it certainly is not going to help you during a market downturn. No, and that's the problem with many of these different asset allocations, that they just blanket invest. They stick... They're more static than they are flexible or active in some ex- to some extent. And look, we're not suggesting you need to, to day trade or you need to you know, be, be trading every week or right. every month. But I would expect if I'm in some type of portfolio that gives you the illusion, and I say illusion because you would think that over time, this would, this would be something that does go to, towards the protection mode. Right. And so that's where the problem lies and that, you know, people, they're invested in these. They think, okay, because of my age, this is perfect. And now they feel bad about, uh, you know, once something falls, they say, oh, my goodness. I mean, look at the lawsuits mm-hmm. on target date funds. Oh, yeah. There's Crazy. tons of them. Tons of them. And, and so the and issue- wait till the next correction. Right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and that, that's the problem. So I think that, you know, anybody in these funds needs to be, you know, probably take a deep dive into it. Make sure you understand what you have. And more importantly, do a financial plan. Because a plan's also going to show you your asset allocation. So that's a really good way for you to jump in. You know, if you're doing research on your own, go look at the fund fact sheet. Go take a look under the hood and see how many stocks, how many bonds, and see where you're invested. Then go back, and I, I always enjoy this, but, you know, I'm kind of a geek when it comes to stuff. You know, looking at each year, how different are they? I mean, seriously. Yeah. They're not as different as you would think. No, and it's true. And, you know, so... You know, this just the, the point about this is just be really careful. Uh, one topic here I wanted to wrap up with before we get to the top, because, again, we kind of talked about this earlier about self-directed IRAs. Correct. And, you know, I'm getting a lot of emails right now. You know, people worried about the market this year. They're worried about the Fed. They're like, hey, should I go put a bunch of gold in my IRA, uh, you know, physical gold? Right. And you can do this. You can go, you know, move your IRA to a trust company and you can put physical assets in your IRA. Don't do it. It's a terrible idea. Um, putting physical gold in your, look, go buy physical gold. Go put it in your vault somewhere, right? Leave your IRA alone. Leave it liquid That because the whole point of that is for it to grow and you have access to it when you need it. You don't need to put your gold inside an IRA. And plus, gold's not performing right now. So you're putting money into a dead asset. And it's not performing with inflation. It's not keeping up with inflation. So it's not helping you. It's actually, it's actually hurting you at this point. Don't stick an asset that has an expense tied to it that is tax deductible in your IRA because you lose the whole tax benefit. That's why you don't put real estate 
inside of your IRA. People go, oh, yeah, but I get the capital appreciation. You know, that's uh, you know tax deferred. Yeah, that's true. It, it is tax deferred, but you lose all of the maintenance expenses, taxes, all the things that you, all those tax deductions that you get, you know, for a house. And plus, when you sell your house, the first $250,000 is tax-free? Correct. If you're married, you have 500000 in capital gains that you can, you could, you're not going to have to pay. So what are you doing? Uh, and so you lose all those expenses. Well, that's just your primary know, residence. Right, Most right. people are doing it for rental property. Exactly, they do. But you're losing all, but the whole purpose of running a rental property is you run it as a business. And so you have all the deductions to offset your income. Correct. And there you go. Somebody paying down the equity of the home. And so I, I yeah, visit with a lot of it. different people and I, a lot of really smart people. And so I always enjoy asking somebody, especially in, when they're near retirement or retired, hey, what's one of the best things you think you did? Or what's something you would change about you know, how you've invested or what you did. And I can tell you this, unequivocally, every person who's invested inside a an IRA with real estate, every time they say, man, I wish I would have, I would have been better off just taking the funds out Yep, and then buying them, buying them outside of this because they forfeit all of those things you just mentioned, all those benefits you're not going to be able to, to utilize. And so that's something that is tough because you hear all these different radio shows. You hear, mm. you, know, you know, people constantly bombarding you with, "Hey, self-directed IRAs." Here's how you do it. You how to use your four hundred one k to buy real estate. Yeah. Well, and we're seeing that the IRS is cracking down on a lot of these things. So what they're looking at, they're calling them deemed distributions. Right. So there's actually just a case. It was uh, U.S. Tax Court. So McNulty versus Commissioner, the IRS essentially, that they had a checkbook IRA. They were out there and they were they were writing checks. So essentially, you set up the LLC, you have the custodian who oversees it, and then you can write a check to go buy gold coins, real estate, whatever it may be. But all income must go back directly into that account. Well, they went out, they bought, they bought some uh, American Eagle coins, mm-hmm. put them in a safe at home. They they were you know gaining a, they they appreciated over time. And guess what the IRS did? They came back and said, whoa, the custodian has no access to this. They're not overseeing this. You have physical possession of this because the moment you take physical possession of That is a distribution. That's considered a distribution. Now, historically, they haven't gone after this, but now they are. And so this could be this could be a really tricky area in the tax code. So I'd consult your CPA. I'd probably want to get out of those sooner rather than later. If you like gold, find other ways to own them. I probably wouldn't want to do inside that IRA for these purposes. Right. So lots can, of can, reasons. Can we get to really big news today? Important news? Today is the 110th anniversary of Oreos. Oh, man. They are celebrating it with a new Oreo cookie flavor called Chocolate Confetti Cake. Chocolate Confetti Cake. Yeah, so 110 years. It's a Mondelez company, so, you know, Oreos. That just makes your whole day better. Doesn't matter how bad things are, eat an Oreo. When's the last time you had an Oreo? Uh, 1911. Oh, I, I know better than that. I've seen you eat Oreos. So, so Lance, if anybody knows, Lance is, you know, he tries to be the beacon of good health, you know, when he's not in, you know, surgery or, you know, getting something fixed because he is the bionic man as well. Yes. And his course. strive to, to physical fitness. Yep. But, you know, you do have I your have weak vices. spot for Oreos. Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. You know what, you know, you know what my, you know, actually what my vice is? What's that? It's uh, peppermint patties. Oh, okay. York peppermint patties is actually my vice. Wow. See, but, I would have lost that. If we were on Jeopardy or something, I would have said Oreos yeah. for sure. No, I no. trust me. Oreos are actually in order of preference, right? If I had to have it, it would be my wife's chocolate chip cookies because okay. she makes the best in the world, but she doesn't bake them because she's always got me on a diet. In fact, we're starting a brand new diet today that she discovered online. So she ordered the book. And so guess what? Diet changes today. Um, 
So she doesn't make those, so York peppermint patties are second and Oreos are third. But those okay. are a rare treat, so awesome. All right, wrap up the show for today. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us an email. Tell us what your favorite advice is. Keep it clean. Um, <laughs> and if you have any questions or comments, let us know. Always happy to help you. Our latest blog post is out. Uh, the second part of Michael Leibowitz's 2022 Outlook on stocks and bonds is out today on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Three minutes on markets money coming up here shortly. It's all there for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.